Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. I'm going to pray to start off with. Lord God, I just thank you for this morning and all the ways you've already been speaking. Lord God, I just found the worship time so encouraging as it um, hit on so many things that I've been thinking about over the last few weeks as I've been preparing. Uh, God, I just pray that you'd help me to communicate clearly what you've put on my heart uh, this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58. Um, and as I was preparing, I um, noticed a startling statistic. Um, there's one thing that's going to happen to everybody in this room, 100% guaranteed, um, and that is death. Um, and your first question will be, oh, crikey, this is a bit of a bleak subject to, to look at on a Sunday morning. Why are we going there? Um, so... Um, hopefully in this first section you'll, you'll hear why I think it's important that we look at this subject. Also, it's basically the next subject in the series that we're doing, so um, that's why we're on it. So, um, a often misattributed quote uh, from Mark Twain, apparently, although there are arguments over whether it's his, the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. Um, some people think Benjamin Franklin originated this one, and others say Edward Ward. I'm not sure who Edward Ward is. Um, but there we are. Um, so the world looks at this subject and thinks, oh, crikey, we're going to think of some other words to call it, so we call it passing away uh, to make the subject less shocking. Um, and we often skirt around this issue in the church as well. Um, it's hard to talk about. Um, there are other subjects that are much easier, like loving one another or discipleship or God's blessings or uh, the plan for our lives that we're chosen and accepted um, we even prefer talking about healing over death, uh, but even the healed die eventually. So um, it's kind of something that we do need to talk about. Um, so it's kind of silly not to talk about it because we're all going to face it. There are certain things that only certain people will face, but this one everybody's going to. So um, it's quite a practical thing to talk about. Um, and if we don't uh, face it, for ourselves immediately, then it, then it may be that a loved one or a family member or someone close to us dies. And there's no escape from this subject, really. Um, when, to be honest, when I said I can do this date, I hadn't looked at the passage, which is always silly. Don't do that. Um, and uh, I looked at the title and went, oh, crikey, okay. Um, the main reason for, th- for that reaction is that my own personal story at the moment makes this quite a raw subject. My uncle, my uncle uh, has been battling cancer for three years and uh, became very weak and actually two weeks ago died peacefully with his, two of his three children and his wife with him. So it, it, it's, uh, that was the other reason I was like, oh, crikey, okay. Um, but actually I found looking at this passage and the subject really cathartic, as in really releasing, um, because it helped me kind of get my head around this whole subject. Um, We often, as Christians, will say to somebody who tells us that somebody's died, were they a Christian, as if it makes a huge difference about how we feel. Um, So why do we do this? Why should the fact that somebody is a Christian make us feel or cope differently? 
Uh, what does the Bible teach us about the Christian or how a Christian should approach this area? How do we help others face it? Um, let's have a look at this passage um, where I need my other thing because this one's too slow to cope with changing screens. So I'm going to read the passage now. So as I said earlier, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15:35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is only, sorry, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For the star differs, differs sorry, from the star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the death of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, that's the passage. Most people, uh, death uh, doesn't come as something they look forward to. It's not something we are keen to experience. But the Bible says that for a Christian, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in the Psalms it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So, you know, when we look at wider literature, um, I found uh, a quote from Gandalf in uh, Return of the King. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. So, being unafraid or treating death as gain is very countercultural. Our culture does everything it can to delay 
the ageing process, we've developed more and more ways of keeping people alive for longer, and we can easily be sucked into this way of thinking. Um, but it's, there's nothing wrong with desiring long life, um, but we do need to have the right perspective. Uh, in our culture, being old is a shame. It's a process of ageing can be suspended as long as possible. That would be a good thing. But the proverb says, long life is the reward of the righteous, and grey hair is a glorious tr- crown. And in the passage we looked at last week, it says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ is raised. If Jesus is not raised, our worship, our teaching, our faith is totally pointless. It says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we should be pitied more than all men. Um, Fortunately, it quickly reaffirms that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Um, And there's one thing and one thing alone that makes sense of most of all that we do, and that that is death is gain. Um, And a failure to believe that makes us, uh, this life, overly significant. It forces us to look for comfort and security and love and acceptance now. And I, as I was preparing this this part, I was wondered whether a lot of prosperity teaching comes from that overemphasis on the fact that um, of the now rather than death being a gain. Because we want to get everything we can now because there's nothing to look forward to. Death isn't a gain. But that's the Bible teaches the opposite. We're kind of believing that philosophy that um, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's, it's, um, but Paul's, Paul was firm on this. He said that death will be gained for us. So how do we look at this scripture? And that's how I want to look at what we're going to go through now. Um, the first thing that Paul looks at in this section is resurrection bodies. Um, and uh, that's the title, really, of this section. And um, what we need to remember when we look at this passage is that Paul was concerned for the life and practice of the church in Corinth. He's writing to specific people, and it's important for us to know that context and to understand their audience. They are a true church. It's not that he's writing to a church that's... Um, that, that it's a true Christian church, um, and it, but it's been impacted and influenced by the city it lives in, uh, or they're living in. And what he's trying to address is the fact that they're living as though they belong to the city more than they belong to God. He wants to remind them that they're gods, that, that, that they are God's people. And he wants them to adopt a pattern of life that demonstrates who God is to the world around them. So he's, he's trying to address certain questions that he's been given or the reports that he's heard. And one of the objections that has been raised is what, what he first deals with. How can the dead be raised to life? He, he kicks off by saying, you're foolish if you think this or if you ask this question. And he goes to an agricultural reference to enforce his point, which for us might be a bit too far to grasp, but for them was quite close to what they did. Most of them would be farmers. Um, he says that the seeds died and is planted and grows into a crop, and that happens because of God's power. And in the same way that a seed would do that, we are raised to, to life, to eternal life. It's foolishness for us to doubt that the dead can be raised because we see it year in and year out with the crops that we plant. It's the same power. Why would we think that the dead can't be raised when we look at the crops and see how they grow? 
So Paul is teaching us to believe in creator God, that he created the crops that produce our food, and we see those die uh, seed and replanted for fresh crop every year. Why question the same power? So that's the first objection, and he doesn't take long to counter it. The second objection, which he spends a lot longer on, 14 verses, what kind of body will they have? What will the resurrection body look like? He continues the analogy in seed. Every seed grows a certain plant. Even though they may have varieties, they all grow a certain plant. There may be distinctives. It's a mystery how seeds grow. We know more about that now than he would have done in those days. But we still don't usually see what happens to a seed when it grows. But obviously it develops a massive change from a little tiny seed to a large plant in different varieties. And Paul is saying it's the same when the dead rise. There's a great change. He develops that further. He says that all living things have different bodies. He talks about the animals, the birds, the fish, different bodies. In the same way that there are different bodies in the earthly, there's different bodies in the heavenly. He goes on. Each body is fit for its its function and would be out of place anywhere else. Clearly our earthly bodies fulfill a function on earth. Some of them, uh, and for the most part, they enable us to live and interact well with our environment. But our earthly bodies would be no use as resurrection bodies. He's saying that just as our earthly bodies uh, are fit for earth, our resurrection bodies are suited to the eternal realm. He's showing us that as, as easy as it is for God to form earthly bodies, trust that same power to outwork heavenly bodies in as many and varied ways. Just as our earthly bodies were sown in corruption, they are raised incorruptible. Paul means that as much as our earthly bodies are impacted by sin and decay, our heavenly bodies will be raised and no longer subject to the power of the grave or that corruption that, that was there. Paul is saying that our resurrection bodies will have that glory reinstilled. The glory that was there in, in, in the Garden of Eden will be in, reinstalled and all that was lost will be re, reformed. In the same way that um, Jesus was, has a glorious body, that will be the same sort of glory. They'll be free from the corruptions of sin and that we'll be able to reflect, fully reflect the glory of God in Jesus. So he's saying it's the same power that raised, that, that, that created earthly bodies that will raise us to new resurrection life. It, isn't it glorious how out of the ruins of our earthly body, as it were, God creates something completely new and restores it? And he's saying that for God all things are possible and therefore this cannot be impossible. As we move on, he talks about the first and second Adam the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He's developing his illustration further. Uh, just as there are physical and spiritual bodies, and as we physically inherit our physical bodies from the first Adam, so we can expect to inherit our spiritual bodies from the second Adam, that is Jesus. As the first Adam was able to recreate life in his own image, so Christ is able to give us life in his spirit. He, he is our resurrection and our life. 
Just John, John 11. Jesus is life and will give that life to all who call on his name. As the first Adam gives life to his offspring, how much more will Jesus give life to those who, are, who he calls his own? It is a divine mystery that we must first be born of Adam so that we can then be born of Jesus. We must first live in frail mortal bodies and die a human death before life and death no more. Paul is saying that as certain as we have our bodies now, as certain as we physically exist in this life now, we will have spiritual bodies then. And that is because of who Jesus is. Because that those who die in Jesus, in, believing in Jesus, as much as they have physical bodies and as much as they inherit from Adam, so they will receive spiritual bodies in Jesus. Just as we had our identity in Adam, then we will receive our identity through Christ and be completely transformed, revealing Christ's full image. Paul brings this teaching into land by talking about how our earthly bodies, although they have usefulness on earth, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So our earthly bodies cannot inherit the kingdom. Hang on, what does that mean? He's repeating and clarifying his point. He's saying that our earthly bodies are not suited for dwelling in the heavenly realm. They're so opposite, so different from God's perfection. And as we remember, a corruption cannot dwell with perfection. How can it be that our sinful bodies that are so, uh, so full of shame and marred by sin could, could dwell in the presence of God? It's not possible, but they have been replaced by an uncorrupted and eternal spirit and they are fit to dwell, therefore, in the presence of God through what Jesus has done for us. So, what have we said? What kind of body will they have? Well, Paul's teaching us that it will be completely different from our current bodies, yet totally appropriate for dwelling in, the, in eternity and in the presence of God, and that we can depend on this again because it will be brought about by the same power that God used in creation. We've also said that the, about the first objection, that it's by that same power that worked in creation that the dead can be raised. The second part of this passage, which um, is probably the most famous part, talks about death being swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It seems to me that this section is a rejoicing in the truth that's just been shared. Um, that it's, a, it's a very famous piece of scripture. It's rejoicing in the revelation of who Jesus is and all that he has accomplished for us on the cross. That he's made a way open, not just for this earthly life, and power in this life, but also power and victory over death as well. There is no, the, there is no sting in, in death's tail now. He's saying death's sting is sin, and its power is the law, but Jesus has given us victory over death, and it no longer has any power over us as believers. Paul believed and was teaching us that power, the power of death has been defeated, that our ancient enemy has been defeated by, by Jesus. He's saying, don't let your work be in vain. Stand firm. 
Stand firm on the promise of what Christ has done for us. The sting of death has been removed. There should be no fear any longer in death like the world has because the sting of death has been removed. It's a firm and sure promise that we will receive Jesus' reward if we trust in him. We are adopted into his line. We become his heirs. We receive a new resurrection body. We will be like him. Our inheritance in him is new life. And it's not just for now, but it's resurrection life. This is why Paul can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And also why he can say that he had light and momentary troubles. When we read about Paul's troubles, we're tempted to think, hang on a minute, has he lost his mind completely? Light and momentary troubles? If one of these things happened to us, we'd probably give up. He's not discrediting his troubles when he says that they're light and momentary. He is increasing the measure of the glory of the eternal, which he is focused on. What do I mean? To him, in comparison, when Paul had his eyes fixed on his goal, in comparison to that, the huge troubles and trials that he faced seemed like nothing. They seemed irrelevant. They seemed light and momentary compared to the glory of the promise which we've received in Christ. Do you feel your labour has been in vain and things have been wasted? Are you believing the lie that it's all waste? Are you allowing circumstances or the fear of death to rob you of your joy or the impact that God wants you to have? Are you seeing your trouble and difficulty through the lens of eternity or through the lens of this age, which says all we can hope for is a happy life now because there's nothing else. Is your perspective right? One caution at this point. This doesn't mean that we should pretend that everything is okay when it isn't. After hearing a teaching about this subject, you can easily feel condemned. We can easily feel condemned. I haven't lived this way. I don't think this way. The lens that I'm looking through doesn't help me in that sense. When we look at this subject and allow our perspective to shift into a more biblical pattern, we can feel foolish about grieving and sorry for those that have died. But actually, if we look at Scripture, Jesus, Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Jesus wept for sorry for his friends and for his loss. And Paul in Philippians talks about being spared and even greater sorrow. He was talking about the death of a fellow Christian. Maybe it's easy to understand that death is gain if we're thinking about somebody else, if we're thinking about someone who's been sick for a long time, um, especially if they've been, you know, it's been a painful illness, but it still feels like loss to us. This is reality. It's not, it's not what we're saying. The teaching isn't just pull yourself together, don't be so silly, don't cry, it's, you know, be strong. But it is saying death doesn't destroy our hope. We shouldn't grieve in the same way that those who have no hope grieve. Rather, our hope is based on nothing less than Christ. And those who have died before us are with him, which is gain. And when our turn comes, which it will, it will also be gain. Have you allowed the death of a loved one to rob you of your joy? Has it flawed your hope? Jesus' promise is secure. What he has done is secure. 
just as sure as you are alive now in your physical body, one day you will rise again in resurrection body. God's promise is this, which uh, Tim stole this morning in his song. (laughs) Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. As I mentioned earlier, my uncle, who's a, who was a committed Christian most of his adult life, died two weeks ago, and his funeral was on Wednesday. And the fact is that just because he was a Christian doesn't make my grief or the grief of my family any less. We still miss him and con- will continue to miss him. But over the last few months, a year and a half maybe, I got to know him better than I ever did before. And we had the privilege of sharing heart and dreaming things of God together, what he would do in the church that they've been part of since the early 90s, and praying for the church as well. They've known God's faithfulness through their lives, through the struggles and trials that they've faced. And over the last year, struggling with a tough diagnosis of different cancers and the way that it drained the life from him, I could still see the fire of God in his eyes when we spoke. He was still committed. And we had the and I had the privilege of spending some hours with him over the last weekend he was alive. And in the last time we met, we talked about life, different priorities, getting priorities right, um, putting priority of family first. And we were able to pray together for God's kingdom to come, for fresh mercies on, on us, for the mission that God had given both of us to be fulfilled. And actually, I wouldn't swap any of those moments for anything else. But it was hard. It was really hard. Um, you can see somebody who was, you know, well-respected in his community, reduced to skin and bones, and his wife beside him weeping. And that's painful, and yet God's mercy was shining through. And it was giving us peace, courage, and hope. It was giving us the energy and the ability to say the things that needed to be said and to be together rather than miles apart. What have I learnt? Um, it's tough. What do I hope to learn? Well, this song um, sort of expresses a lot of what I'm feeling and sense God teaching me. Life is short, I want to live it well. One life, one story to tell. Life is short, I want to live it well. And you're the one I'm living for. Awaken all my soul. Every breath that we take is a miracle. Life is short, I want to live it well. I'm living for more than just a funeral. I want a brand brighter than the dawn. In reality, what this season has taught me is that life is short. (laughs) However long you think you've got, life is still short. Um, You might get 60, 70, maybe even 80. You may even be lucky enough to get longer than that. But it's gone in a blinkling of an eye. And I want to live in such a way that displays God's glory. To make good decisions. Not to live life in regret. And yeah, there will be regrets. There will be things that will be left undone. There will be things left unsaid. But I don't want to live life in a way that prevents me from making good decisions. I don't want my focus to be pie in the sky when I die, but steak on a plate while I wait. Which is a terrible saying, but it kind of works. You get what I mean. I don't want to just be so focused on eternity that I miss what God's doing now. And also, I do want to know God's promises for the future. 
this Quaker saying seems to be entirely relevant. I expect to pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that I can do or any kindness I can show to any fellow creature, let me do it now. Let me not defer or neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Let's sum up what we've looked at. We've looked at two objections to the resurrection. How can we be raised? Well, we're raised by the same power that was at work in creation. What kind of body will we have? Well, it'll be completely different from our current body and yet totally appropriate for dwelling in eternity in the presence of God. And we can depend on this again because it will be brought about by that same power that God used in creation. We've been reminded that the power and sting of death is sin and the power of death is the law, but that through Jesus, in both of these things, we've been given victory, and that's really, really good news. We've also learned that we shouldn't pretend. It's good to grieve. It's, it's okay to be sad, uh, especially at the loss of a loved one or someone close. But don't let it rob you of the new perspective that God has given you. So I've got a number of questions, probably too many, um, but hopefully some will speak into your situation and help you think about what God might want you to learn and put into practice in your life. Are you believing the lie that it's a waste? Are you allowing circumstances or the fear of death to rob you of your joy or the impact that God wants you to have? Are you seeing your trouble and difficulty through the lens of eternity or through the lens of this age, which says that all that we can hope for is to be happy in life because that's not, there's nothing else? Is your perspective right? Have you allowed the death of a loved one or to rob you of your joy or has it flawed your hope? How are you going to live differently after today? What situations in your life do you need to face again? What areas do you need to seek resolution for? Are there, sorry, are there relationships you want to restore? How are you going to live your life knowing that it is short? What changes are you going to make? I really feel that one of the things that we were blessed about in terms of my uncle was being able to talk about the things that needed to be talked about before he died. <laughs> and it meant that my cousins were able to work through situations that happened when they were young and talk them through and find some closure on those things. And um, if you've got situations in your life, in your family, whatever they are, I mean, I don't think any of them are particularly major, but those things can become huge things later in life. Um, and um, just feel that if you need to face those things, then we'd love to pray for you about that. Um, but don't, don't leave things, because they often fester or get bigger than they ever were. Um, and life is short. Don't leave it till tomorrow, what you can sort out today. The things I'd like to pray for this morning are for anyone that's struggling because of death or long-term sickness of a loved one. Anyone that feels that the past is robbing them of joy or their impact for God. Anyone that's struggling with the fear of death. Seems like an obvious one, but it's be really good to pray for people about that. Anyone who feels like they've been robbed of their hope. And also for people that feel a fresh commissioning to live for Christ because of what I've shared today. Thanks for listening to this
Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk and come along on any Sunday morning.